Welcome, guys, to the Recovering Reality Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fredrickson. We are honored that we could be a part of your recovery journey and encourage you and help you in any way possible. Before you enjoy this awesome podcast, we also just want to let you know there is a whole bunch of free resources that you can find on our website at recoveringreality.com. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, friends, to another episode here. We're back at it again on the Recovering Reality Podcast. I have a new friend here, Adrian Young. Adrian, how are you today, man? I'm blessed, man. I'm good. How are you, Eric? I'm doing well, man. I, I believe you are after... Uh, I don't know your whole story, but I know right. the big picture. And after yeah. hearing it, I believe you are doing well. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, Adrian is the brother of one of my best friends on the whole planet. I'm very dear friends with his sister and her husband, the two of them and their family. Yeah. And he, had, Adrian has been on a journey. It's safe to say. And Quite a bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> and you got out of prison uh, a month ago. That's right. Right? That's right. And before prison, life was a little different than it is now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Totally, totally different um, path, man. Absolutely. But uh, you used your time in prison extremely effective. You were very effective in there. Yeah. Um, and we want to jump into to that, man, because I know one of the reasons why I just never get tired of having people on sharing their story is that there's a lot of hurting people out there. There's a lot of people going through stuff that need hope or their family members going through stuff. And it's stories like this that infuse people's hearts and minds and situations and circumstances with hope. Right, right. Um, and so thanks for coming on, man, being willing to to share your journey and your story. Absolutely. It's a pleasure, man. Uh, I'm really appreciative of you in, inviting me to an opportunity like this. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. So... So take us on a journey, man. Take us on a journey, dude. Um, what was life like for you growing up in, correct me if I'm wrong, Louisiana? That's correct. Is that right? That's um, right. What was life like for you there, man? And what got you going on a path that landed you in prison of all places? Okay, so um, it's, it was definitely a, a long journey. Um, I grew up in a broken home as a child. Um, I, I was raised predominantly by my mother uh, at certain periods of my life. And, and at a younger age, I would see my, my father on, on the weekends and stuff. And um, um, growing up in a broken home has an impact on children, on people. Um, and especially as a, I guess, as a boy, not having um, that direct positive relationship with my father all the time, that, that really did play a big role. I always felt like that was uh, a missing piece and uh, a void that created an emptiness on the inside of me that um, I guess not using it as an excuse, you know, I, I take responsibilities for the things that that took place in my life, but it definitely had an influence on my behavior and stuff like that. And uh, my environmental influence growing up in a home with my mom wasn't always great, um, to say the least. Uh, we had a very functional, dysfunctional family. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure plenty of people can relate to that and, and can understand 
uh, that in, in certain terms or whatever. Um, so right. I'll just, I just want to say this too, man. You know, I, I appreciate you opening up being honest about it. And obviously God has restored so many things, but right. you know, if, if you just Google statistics Absolutely. of men, Fa primarily yeah. men, fatherless growing homes up, and... fatherless homes, yeah. it will make your head explode. Oh, absolutely. I've, like I've seen 4,000 times more likely for this and 300 yeah. times more, like it's the statistics are so mind boggling. That's right. Violence, drug addiction, prison, dying of a violent crime committee, all so many things. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable. Um, and so to see where you're at now is it's pretty amazing. Man. But, yeah. And so in, in that home growing up, I mean, that's definitely things you just now mentioned are, are things that I've seen from Dude, a very young age, even before I can actually remember my family, uh, my sister Jessica has told me, my mom has told me about situations that I was in in the household where violence was there and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, me screaming, crying and stuff, you know, from two or whatever on. Um, and I don't remember those specific things, but I do know growing up from the time I can remember in life all through my teenage years, uh, I, was, I witnessed a lot of domestic violence in my family, in my home. Um, even amongst my, I have three older sisters, um, amongst them, their boyfriends, stuff like that. And, and I seen this and it, it impacted me. I even seen domestic violence between, um, my mom and, and a couple of her, uh, boyfriend friends or significant others at, at the time that she was with them. And, um, that can't not impact you heavily. At that yeah, yeah, sure. I, yeah. I had I, to say the least from, I guess from the resentment in life and just things that happen um I begin to express myself through anger um I begin to express myself through lashing out at a younger age you know breaking things in the home just being um a bad boy basically um fighting all the time fighting in school I took a real liking to um karate taekwondo and boxing and stuff like that and really because I felt like it was an outlet for me. So I played a lot of sports growing up. Um, football was a, a, a major, major thing in my life. I was, I was very um, successful in, you know, teenage years in high school with football. But of course, my, my life went a, a different way. Um, I, I was too. I, I had opportunities to go play college, but I told people, I'm like, I couldn't even make it to a court date on time. I was not right. going to make it to practice. <laughs> Come on, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so also with with, with all the, the violence and stuff and, and fighting amongst um, relationships that I've seen and all that, um, addiction, drug use was, was a, a big thing in my family uh, amongst a lot of people, cousins, um, some of my sisters, uh, one of my sisters still, well, she's doing better, but she's had a lifetime of it. And, um, and so I went, I remember I went through a transition at about 12 or 13 at that time. And, and all people have always told me, friends of the family, family have always told me that I had to grow up a lot faster than most kids. And right. than I should have had to, at, that, to. At, at the age that I was, I had to grow up a lot quicker. And I've always been told that I was, um, I guess, mature wise beyond my years and stuff from a younger age and stuff, even though obviously a lot of the choices I made were not mature wise choices. But um, so I, went, I remember going through a transition about 12 or 13 years old where I went from hating what I seen going on in my family, the drug addiction, um, 
the, the violence, the fighting all the time. Every time our family got together, we would have a great time and then people would get intoxicated or using substances and then they would turn into a huge family fight, huge fallout. Everybody leaves angry, not talking to each other and stuff like that. And before 12 or 13, I would hate it. I would hate the drug use. I would hate everything, the fighting. Why can't we just get along? And even at that age, I would play like a, a, um, a counselor or a middleman between siblings and cousins and mom and aunts. And like, at a, at a, as a kid, like I shouldn't have been playing that role, you know, um, but I would. People would always come to me to talk to about the issues and I would try to mend things from a young age. And uh, I got to the point around that, those years where, I felt hopeless in it. Like, I felt like this is not going to change. This is the way my family is. And it seemed like those that were um, being bad, so to speak, getting in trouble, causing this drama. Um, and and I, I say drama very heavily, not lightly, because there was a ton of drama. Right. Not like um, some gossiping or something. Yeah. No, yeah. Like just, you know, real, real hectic, um, traumatic situations every time family got together, you know. Um, they were the ones getting the attention. They were the ones getting all the love and, and support and trying to help them and stuff like that. And uh, I guess I felt like here I am trying to be good and it's not working. So then that's whenever I started saying, well, you know what, if I can't beat them, I'm just going to join them. I'm going I'm to start doing the same things and, and see where that gets me, you know. Uh, and about what age is this decision made? between 12 and 13 years old pretty young oh, wow. yeah pretty young pretty young that's whenever uh that's whenever i started jumping off the porch so to speak uh in in street lingo <laughs> um so i'm definitely uh i'm definitely totally different now in the way i I'm, i present myself the way i talk and everything so i used to be of a totally different mind frame and um the i guess my environmental influence growing up in south louisiana uh all around Lake Pontchartrain area. So if somebody asks me where I'm from, I'll probably just tell them I'm from Lake Pontchartrain, which that that's not even a place. It's just a lake in Louisiana. So I, I grew up all around that. Huh? Pontchartrain? Yeah, Lake Pontchartrain. That's uh that's where the Causeway <laughs> Bridge is is at. Um, that wow. connects the north North Shore to the South Shore of New Orleans. Um, <laughs> but I lived in, in, in so many places. I, I was we were never settled. Uh, in my life, whenever I grew up, we, we lived in pretty much every town around Lake Pontchartrain, it seems like, um, from the North Shore to the South Shore. Um, and that area is very, um, you know, like in Louisiana down here, it's not really so much gang related as it would be like in California or different places, but but there is a lot of uh, um, projects and, and street violence and, and that whole type of uh, thug mentality and stuff like that. And, and I guess around that age, that, that started attracting me and the whole, um, the whole hip hop movement. Uh, I, I was, I felt accepted amongst that type of stuff. And uh, it seemed like that was the, the cool thing, you know, that what was that, the hip hop artist at that time. Oh man. You talking about cash money records, Lil Wayne. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, uh, you yeah, talking yeah. about that's, that's Eminem, Jay-Z. <laughs> Of course, before that, Tupac and Biggie, you know, I mean, yeah, people yeah. that's listening today probably don't even know the people I'm mentioning, Young Jeezy and T.I. and all that stuff. No, um, now they're listening to stuff that you can't stuff that you call can't even music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Back then, it wasn't talking about anything good. At least they were talented. 
<laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Now, now they can just cry on a record and, and put a beat on it, you know, <laughs> hey, whatever. Exactly. Um, so you're now your young teenage years. Yeah. Yeah. And violence, drug. I mean, it's all, you know, you don't know much. anything else. It's all you've seen your whole life. And now yeah. you're old enough to venture into the world on your own. And what starts happening, man? What, what does life start looking like for you? Okay, so, so yeah, when, whenever you say venturing into, into the world on my own, uh, that's actually exactly what, what happened. I mean, at, at 13 years old, I would be, you know, riding my bike through town and I'd be going to the French Quarter in New Orleans, Bourbon Street, all that area, like at an age where a child, because that's what I was, Mm -hmm. shouldn't have been encountering these things. I shouldn't have been out there on my own. I shouldn't have been out there seeing and exploring the things that I was, you know. Um, and so then it just opens up a whole nother realm. It opens up a whole nother world um, uh, that will negatively in a, in a very negative way influence a child in his mind. Um, right. And so I, I started, I started doing the things that I seen and the things that I heard in, in the music I was listening to, the uh, music played a, a very influential role in my life. And some people don't believe that. Some people don't, don't think that's possible, but um, it, it did. I mean, the things that I was listening to and the things I would hear um, said, I felt like, well, to be considered um, real, so to speak, or hard, or to have this certain image that I was trying to live up to and because I didn't have an identity. I didn't know what my identity was. I, I didn't even know what identity was. Um, and so I was trying to fit into this mold of this supposed street life, this, this hardcore, whatever, you know, you, uh, big and bad, do anything, didn't care if I hurt people. I just wanted this image, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't want to be, perceived as soft or, or whatever, you know, it's foolishness now as I, as I speak of it and even think about it, that this is what was attracting me and, and caught my attention so much. And, and really that lifestyle became an addiction. Um, wow. Yeah. Being, so being true, that, the, the, the stuff that comes with that, um, drug use, partying, um, you know, carrying guns, robbing, breaking in places, you know, hitting licks, uh, what we called it. Um, mm -hmm. Those things became an addiction, the rush, the adrenaline, um, the, the way that other, your peers would view you like, you know, oh, such and such is, is this type of way, like don't mess with him or whatever. And, and having that vibe, having that, that image and, and having respect, not in a genuine way, but respect from a fear or intimidation you thrive on that whenever your mind frame is caught in, in those ways. And uh, that's exactly where I was at, at 14, 15, 16. And, and it progressively got worse. It progressively got worse um, up until the time I, I became incarcerated and, you know, had a, had a run in with a brick wall and finally was stopped in life, you know? You know, it's I, I, the thing with the music is is so true and so important. And you're, it's interesting. You're not the first person that's come on the show that talked about how yeah. 
the music they listened to molded their mind and yeah. solidified, sent them on that path or solidified them in it or both or whatever. Right. Um, it's so true. And it was for me too. It was the hip hop listening yeah. to that drove me into um, a lot of the exact same stuff you're talking about, living yeah, that yeah. lifestyle. Oh, it's it was it's just spiritual, man. It's spiritual. Stupidity. It'll put you in a totally different mind frame and you will become uh, a different person. You, you will morph into a different person, you know? Absolutely, man. So, so here you are living the quote unquote gangster life, whatever, if that's right, the whatever, word for it. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> um, Stupid. You're not even old enough to drive yet. No, not and you're living, and, and you're living this, this life here in an environment, you know, I tell people, so my, my addiction took place in the state of Utah, which a lot of people don't know, like was in, was one of the worst states in the entire country for drug addiction and overdoses in like the early 2000s. Okay. A lot of people like, wow. what, Utah? Um, but a lot of the stuff you're talking about wasn't so prevalent. It was more, mainly just hidden pill addiction that killed people. I yeah. tell people, man, if I would have been in an environment like the one you're talking about living the way I was living, I doubt I would have lived through it. I, there's right. no way I would have lived through it. Just right, with right. the drug addiction and the craziness yeah. and here you are at that age, um, 16, going into Bourbon Street. So that's... Uh, uh, I was more like 13 and 14 going into Bourbon Street. So you're going into... There, and <laughs> I was out there with, with friends that were just a year, two years older than me. And we're in the middle of, of Mardi Gras while that's going on and, and stuff like that. You know, seeing all sorts of things. I'm, I'm trying to be mild right now in my description of of my life actually i feel like i'm kind of being mild but um i, I don't want to get um too i get uh, it man we don't want to spend too much time on that but at the same time i think sometimes telling it like it really was which which you are yeah um it helps people understand how good god is when he gets his hands absolutely and so that speak- it doesn't matter how far you've gone it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. that just not to promote you can continue digging the hole but god can change things for you man so so to share for those that um for those that have had addiction issues and stuff like that um and you touched on addiction so so to share about that um at 12 i started smoking weed um that was the you know people say it's a gateway or whatever but that that was where i started at with with substance abuse um so everyone starts (laughs) yeah yeah pretty much yeah. Um, so I went from I went from that from 12 all the way until I was incarcerated smoking weed like that I, I didn't even um, I didn't even consider that a drug anymore to me that was just normal matter of fact I can recall telling family um, you mentioned Jessica and Paul like I can remember telling them like I'll never stop smoking weed you know like I might stop other things and whatever but I'll never quit smoking weed I've said that I used to say that all the time um, and so then we turned into um, whenever I was 13 at a high school party in ninth grade, um, started Coke, started snorting Coke for the first time. Um, then cocaine turned into X pills. Um, I, I feel like X pills was probably, if you would say an addiction, I guess that you would say that was the, the first major thing that, that I, I was addicted to because once I tried that, uh, it seemed like I fell in love with it. I wanted to do it all the time. I wanted to, Me too. to roll. I wanted to roll back to back days on end every weekend, whenever I could. Like that, that was just the the party drug, the feel good, euphoric high. Um, and then um, I did that from about probably fourteen uh, until I was incarcerated. Um, periodically, I mean, there's times I would go 
months without doing it, but then you go on a binge and you do it for, you know, back to back for a while and it, it would come and go. And then, um, and then about 16, the pain pills, you know, the Lord tabs and Percocets and taking the Zambars and the Somas and all that type of stuff, that whole route right there. And, uh, and then of course the pain pills, um, increased from the lower tabs and all that stuff to, to the Oxycontins, you know, when that hit and, um, doing all those things. And so at 15, um, I had two major losses in my life. Uh, one, one of my cousins, um, Larry, which everybody called him Bubba. Um, he played a, a real influential role in my life as a, as a kid, he was, you know, so I guess I was craving, um, men roles in my life growing up because of that lack from my relationship with my father um and so like I would attach to sisters boyfriends or um cousin older cousins or uncles or something like that men that were close close friends in the family that were basically like family to our family I would attach to them and you didn't have yeah yeah, I would I would attach to them and look to them as role models and and try to hang out with him all the time. And so my cousin Bubba, he was kind of like that for me. And uh, um, he died in when I was 15. He died in um, July. Um, and at that time, I was living with my one of my sisters, Rachel. And um, me and her were very close. And so losing Bubba was a... a a hard thing for me to process and deal with at 15 years old and stuff like that. And, um, from July until December of that same year, when I was 15, the sister that I was living with Rachel, she wound up dying. Um, she overdosed, she overdosed. Um, I don't, I don't want to really go into detail about that, but, but she overdosed from, from shooting, from shooting up. And when those two things happen at 15, it just, I guess it kind of put me over the top. It was the, it was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, um, piled on top of my, my hurt from growing up the way I did, um, from having the family issues, just that anger, that bitterness, that resentment, all that stuff that just added on top of that. And I really reached a point at that age where I didn't care. It didn't matter to me. Instead of it, instead of it being a thing that propelled me to do better, um, it made me bitter and it made me hurt and not care. And it made me, um, try to do anything that would temporarily, which I didn't realize this, this at the time, but do anything that would temporarily cover that pain or because I was in pain, I would then inflict pain, you know, hurting people, hurt people. And, and, um, that's exactly what the process that was going on in my life at that time. And you would think that having a sister, die from overdose, uh, you would think that that would make me never use drugs. You know, logically thinking in my mind now, that's what I would say. At that time, I thought I was using morals. And so in my morality, I said, well, I'm just never going to put a needle in my arm. Right. You know, I'm only going to snort oxycodone. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to shoot, shoot it. it. You know, yeah, I'm just not going <laughs> to shoot it, but I'll snort oh, anything or I'll pop anything or, or smoke anything or something like that. You know, and that was my morality. And you couldn't tell me I wasn't doing good. <laughs> um, Such glorious standards we live by. <laughs> right. Isn't that weird? Um, and so, and so that was the, the morality, like I said, that um, the values or whatever, um, 
And so I, I told myself I would never stick a needle in my arm. And, uh, and I never did. Uh, not that it makes anything else I did any better. But um, so at the age of 17, um, the, you know, the, the pain pills really take a toll on you. And then when you don't have them, you really become sick and, and you feel, you feel horrible. Um, and I, I was experiencing that one time. I mean, dude, even, even it got, it got so bad to the fact to where, um, man, and, and this is, this is horrible. And I, I feel, I feel very shameful for this, but dude, I, I would steal cause I, okay. So moving on, I would, I would live with, was living with Jessica and Paul. All right. And um, we wound up going to, to Orlando, Florida. Paul was pastoring out there. I had a dream back then of being a producer. I wanted to be in music. So he brought me out there to finish high school and enroll in Full Sail University because I wanted to go into audio production. And I actually did that. I went to, I went to Orlando, Florida with Paul and Jessica. Um, dude, Paul, first of all, shout out to, to Paul Dabdu, my sister's husband. He is an oh, amazing, man. amazing yes, man. He's a great father. He's a great leader. He's a great husband. He's a great example. And um, all of those things he, are true. Listen, he showed me the love of a father. He beyond beyond a shadow of a doubt, he showed me one of the greatest examples I ever seen in life. And because of my lack of understanding and my ignorance at that time in my life and my hurt and my pain, I rejected all of that. I pushed him away and I, I kept mm -hmm. a distance, you know. Um, I had I had great encounters of with God because of that man, and I didn't know how to process it. I, I didn't know how to how to bring him in or embrace that at that time of my life, and um, and so I I was living in the home of a pastor and was acting a fool, okay, disrespecting him, disrespecting his family, my sister, my family, um, to the point where I would I was stealing from him. I brought friends over that stole from Paul, you know, and, and Paul still loved me. Okay. <laughs> and that's just mind blowing. I couldn't, I couldn't recollect, uh, or, or rather I couldn't recognize this stuff until years later, once, once Jesus grabbed a hold of me and then I could look back and be like, wow, oh my God, you know? Um, and so there wow. I was in Florida and, you know, I, in front of in front of family, I would always try to portray a good a good role. I didn't want them realizing the stuff that I was getting into, um, the the criminal activity, and stuff like that. Although the the thing is is whenever you're in that type of lifestyle, whenever you're using, um, you know, you think that it's hidden. You think <laughs> nobody not. else can tell. You think you you think you can you know dress nice and spray some cologne and fix your hair and then go in the house and they can't tell you know they can't <laughs> smell the blunt you just smoked in their own yeah. backyard you know yeah, like exactly you know? insanity or, or oh, in the driveway can... in the car yeah, you know exactly. you think you can go inside and and you can look at them and they think you're normal and and really it's a uh, <laughs> it's a huge red flag and, and you're like oh, you're waving so the flag saying you know look at me i'm high right now and i and i'm screwing up in life <laughs> mm -hmm. um, when everybody, everybody knows, everybody yeah, everybody knows, everybody exactly. knows. Yeah. Um, but you don't realize that at the time. And, um, and so anyways, there I was in Florida. I, I, I probably went forward a whole bunch here in the conversation, but, um, um, I remember I was, this is where I was going with it is, is from the pain pills. I was on Oxycontin at that time. Um, reached a moment, a day, a weekend, whatever. Um, I was at a, a, a partner of mine's house at, you know, 
whatever your associate, whatever you would call them. Um, and as far as I knew, you know, we did pills together. We smoked weed together. We did criminal activity together, stuff like that. I didn't know um, that he did heroin. I had no idea that he did heroin. He hid that from me. I guess he didn't want to, or he felt like I wouldn't accept it or whatever. He knew about my sister dying, stuff like that. And uh, one day I was in his apartment in Orlando, Florida. And dude, I was dope sick. I was on pills and I didn't have anything and I couldn't get off the couch. My body was hurting. I was, you know, crying, like, you know, hurting, you know? And, um, and so then he told me, he was like, dude, he was like, I have something. Uh, he was like, you know, but it's already crushed up. Like you just have to snort it or, or whatever. And at that time I didn't even ask like, what is it or, or whatever. He just told me that it would, you know, would take the pain away and stuff like that. It, I would be all right. He told me it was some type of pill and uh, he, he lined it up on the, on the kitchen counter and I snorted it and immediately I knew it was something different. And, um, and that was the first time I ever snorted heroin. And I was 17 years old at that time. Um, and dude, from there forward until I got incarcerated, it, it was downhill. It was all destructive and downhill. Um, um, I started snorting heroin on a regular basis at that time. And again, that's where my morals, so to speak, kicked in. And I said, well, I'll just never shoot it. Uh, so right. so the, the, the associate that I had that time, you know, he would shoot um, and I would just snort bundles of heroin. Um, and I wind up, okay, so I, I did, we did, uh, Paul got me enrolled. I graduated while I was out in Orlando, Florida, um, got my high school diploma and stuff, and then I enrolled in Full Sail University, and Paul was really, really trying to propel me along in that way. And um, what wound up happening is um, I wound up coming back to Louisiana, come to New Orleans to to visit, and just um, you know, wasn't I wasn't really content where I was at at that time, and uh, I wound up connecting with an old friend. And so this is getting to my incarceration you asked about like what led up to this incarceration all this stuff going on here what I've been explaining I connected with a friend um, we're out in New Orleans I wasn't back in Louisiana for about three or four days or something like that coming from Orlando when I was living with Paul and Jessica like I said that was a life I was living and I was living in the home of a pastor you know go figure and um, so I connect with with this old friend of mine childhood friend that I knew for years and within a matter of days, we were arrested in New Orleans and was sitting on five counts of armed robbery. And hmm. that was January 4th. That's no small thing. Dude, that, that's pretty big. I, I didn't realize it at the time. Um, in my mind at that time, I had never been in trouble. I, I had escaped a lot of trouble through my teenage years. Um, always was able to talk my way out of it or honestly there was times dude where I almost got arrested and the officer like would see me or whoever I'm with and just from appearance and looking so young having a baby face or whatever they would be like oh no that's not them and it was and we would be like and they let us go you know and I've, I've had many, I've had close calls and run-ins and, and really that was horrible because that made me feel like I was, you know, couldn't, I couldn't get in trouble. I couldn't get caught. I was, yeah, I was bulletproof. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I, you, I, I couldn't, nothing could stop me. 
I feel like I could get away with anything. And that just encouraged it more. That just added fuel to the fire and, and made me go harder, you know? Um, but anyway, so there I was. And uh, I thought because I had never actually been in trouble that my first time being in trouble, I'd get probation or something. I had no idea that armed robbery and what I was doing carried the consequences that it does carry. I knew what I was doing was wrong. No question about that. Like I knew that that wasn't okay, but I didn't care. I didn't think I would get in the, the amount of trouble that I did. And uh, I remember sitting on the bench um, when we first got arrested in the precinct and I'm sitting on the bench, we're handcuffed to the bench and the cop walks by and he tells me, he says, boy, he says, you don't know what you just did to your life. He said, uh, he said you're facing 99 years. And I laughed wow. at this man and I told him, and I told him like, no, I'm not. I said, I've never been in trouble. I'll get probation. And he just shook his head and, and, and he was right. Cause come to find out armed robbery carries at a minimum um, 10 with a firearm. It's a five year enhancement. So it brings it up to 15 and a judge can give you anywhere between 15 and 99 years for one count of armed robbery. And I had five. Wow. Okay. <laughs> 17 and, and, years old. No, I, that was right after I turned 18. I was so 18, 18 years old at that time. Once that wow. happened, I was 18. And my um, my guess would be as well, you're in court dope sick? No, so... Or so, in jail dope sick? No, no, actually no. Um, I, I can't, man, I can't really remember the exact timing, but um, so the, the dude that... that introduced me to heroin and I started snorting heroin with and stuff like this. And man, my, my sister can attest to this, Jessica, when I was living in Orlando with them, dude, every single weekend, they was worried about me because every weekend, well, I say weekend from like a weekend to us then was like from Thursday to Monday, you know, that exactly. was the weekend. And, and, uh, dude, we were going to Miami from Orlando, taking that drive and, and getting into stuff we had no business, uh, getting into, we were going to Miami every single weekend and um, a fallout happened, which normally happens in that type of life and that type of game or whatever. And me and the guy, uh, we, we quit uh, associating with each other. And when we quit associating with, with each other, I went through the dope sickness. But after that, I quit. Um, I just went through it. I just went through it and, you know, just kept smoking weed or whatever. And uh, I would take X pills instead. And that would kind of, ease it, you know, because X-Pills is a mixture of, of uppers and downers, Coke and heroin and everything else that's in it. Um, um, and so I went through that phase before I got arrested, actually. And um, when, when, when I got arrested at that point, I, I hadn't done heroin in a couple months, I guess, something like that. I'm not exact. Mm -hmm. I can't remember exactly um, the time period or whatever. But um, when, when we got arrested that night, we was on X-Pills. And of course, smoking weed and drinking or whatever. Um, but when I got arrested, no, I, I think the the impact of of that that type of incarceration and and realizing what I was facing once once I was faced with it, I think that kind of overrode everything else and 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 truly sobered uh, you up real quick. Sobered me up really <laughs> quick. You know, you had a a sobering experience, definitely. Um, so you're so you're 18. Uh, you're facing, you're literally facing 15 to 99 years. Yeah, um, times five. Times, times five. five. Yeah. 
and you're 32 like now. And you're, what is it like 497 years or something? And I had a bail. Um, I had a. I had my my bail was like at a half a million dollars. Wow. Something ridiculous. Yeah. Wow. So, so let's fast forward. You get convicted. Yeah. You're in. You're in prison. Yeah. Um. What does that hit you like? What's it like all of a sudden now? The brakes are hit and they're hit hard. And oh, all of a real. sudden now you're. You're 18 years old facing whatever it is they gave. I mean, so spoiler alert, you're 32 and you're out. So we yeah. know a little bit of the story, but you spent 14 years in there. Yeah, 14 years, yeah. 14 years. And that's a miracle um, right there. Absolutely. And um, I want you definitely to get into how productive you were with your time in there. But my guess is that initially you didn't just start being productive right when you got in there. Is that is that a correct that, guess yeah that, that's correct i mean it's a it's a it's a chaotic environment especially where i was at in orleans parish um it's uh you know there's a saying a lot of people say nobody wants to go to jail in mexico have you ever heard that oh yeah overseas okay. in general but yeah mexico yeah. Mm -hmm. okay so there was a there was a mexican from mexico in orleans parish and he said he said, they say you never want to go to jail in Mexico. And he said, no, you never want to go to jail in OPP. Wow. <laughs> uh, and so that came from, that came from somebody from Mexico. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, it, that, that's a, that's a totally different in, environment. And, uh, um, you know, I thought I was real before, um, but that's when it got real, you know, that that's when it got real. Um, and I finally was in a position in life where there was nothing I could do to get myself out the position. And, nobody in my family could help me either and so uh that was the first point in my life i think i encountered a situation like that um and i didn't realize uh, i did i didn't grow up in a christian home i grew up always believing in god you know in your mind you know i, I can't remember a point where i didn't believe either god existed or there is a god or something like that and i guess there was always an influence of jesus christ in my life um from family friend uh, or from friends and being around their family that went to church going to church with friends as a kid uh the influence of paul in my life with my sister jessica um but i never i never really took to it or understood discipleship and committing my life or yielding myself to god submitting to god i never understood that process i just knew i believed in god i felt like we had our own personal relationship even through the years of my criminal activity and through my drug use and and all that stuff there was moments where I would pray. There was moments where I did have encounters with God, but didn't realize it at the time until years later, I was able to look back and identify these key moments. Um, there was plenty, plenty seeds that were sown into my life um, by Paul and Jessica and going with them to church and, and that influence and by another guy named Troy Lewis, which is part of Celebration Church in Metairie, Louisiana. Um, he's also an author. He has He's working on his third book right now, um, shout out to Troy Lewis. Um, and also, um, one of my friends when I grew up, his parents, um, John and Brenda Vincent, I never realized it at the time, but, but them bringing me to church with them, those three things in my life, sowed strong, strong seeds that I didn't know were there and that wind up harvesting or, or the harvest wind up coming from that years later after I was incarcerated. Um, so I was faced with a situation where I couldn't do nothing for myself. There was no way I could get myself out of it. And 
now I have to face reality. I stopped for the first time in my life. I had to think for the first time in my life and I had to examine my life and quickly realize that where I was and the path I was on and what I was doing truly was not the person that I was on the inside. It didn't reflect my heart, uh, even though my heart was calloused and, and a bunch of rock and different stuff built up around it. Breaking through that, I have a, a very genuine, authentic, good heart on the inside, which does come from my family. Uh, even in the, the buildup of functional dysfunctionality, like I mentioned earlier, my family is a very loving and supportive family um, beneath and behind all of those drama, all that drama and all those issues that have been there. Um, and which, you know, Jessica, and so you know how Jessica is. And that's, that's really the core of how our family is beyond addiction, beyond fighting, beyond those things. Um, it's kind of crazy, even just like us talking right now, man. I mean, I've, we just met. Uh, so, you know, over the phone recently after you got out and have been, uh, connecting and gosh, she had me praying for you years ago. Yes. Gosh, six yes, years ago, even like longer than that, seven, eight years ago, yeah. I yeah. was praying for you and she was telling me and to see it now is, uh, it's pretty amazing, man. But Amen. Amen. so let me ask you this in prison at 18, the life you've lived, you, <clears throat> We know now, you, you've told me now, you know, the, the credentials that you have. Okay. When, when uh, which you haven't mentioned here in, in, the, in the show yet, but when did, when did it really start settling in? When did you really start seeing it change? How did that come about in prison? And what provoked you to accomplish what you did in prison? Okay, so the, those seeds that I were talking about, um, they, begin to, they begin to bring forth a harvest. And I realized... Um, those seeds that were sown in my life, it was like your whole life flashes before your, your eyes, right? And in your mind's eye, you can see these things. Um, I don't know where we're at on time. I know I'm probably talking too much, but- um, Take your time, man. This, okay, this is um, the part, and I say that because, you know, this is the part where it's like, um, people need to hear this that have been through hell. The because transition, yeah. Like you, when people are younger. I think there's a lot of people who just live a crazy life, whatever. And they're like, well, God's yeah. real, you know? And right. I, I, I was really good at praying once the handcuffs went off. Yeah. Yeah. I always started really praying when those yeah, handcuffs yeah. went off, but an actual real relationship of walking it out, it's so foreign to people. And sometimes they just go to church and hear a message thinking that's just going to do it or whatever. And right, it's like, right, right. no, there's a commitment to a process of walking with God. And that's the part I feel like people need to hear more and more and more of, of like, right. look, it's messy. Yeah, it's yeah, messy yeah. early on. Yeah. And, he, and God doesn't mess, run y'all. away from it. Yeah. It's a and God doesn't mess. run away from it. He actually <laughs> right. dives he in runs the middle to you. of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so, okay. Let me see. Um, I would say, okay, before I received the sentence that I did, I made a commitment. Um, I wound up, falling in the cell with a group of guys that were doing a Bible study in the midst of all the, the fighting and stabbing, there would be Bible study. And uh, what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes even the ones leading Bible study had to fight. I mean, that's just, it's part of it. Not, I'm not promoting it, but did you just say fight. in the midst of the fighting and the stabbing, 
there was, was Bible, Bible studies. studies. Oh yes. my gosh, that is not <laughs> funny, but it is so funny. It, yeah, uh, and it's a reality. Uh, it is. It's a very, it's a very real reality. Um, and so I made a decision before my court dates, before I received the sentence, that no matter what the outcome, no matter what, I, I was gonna surrender. I surrendered, and I was gonna, you know, serve God. I didn't care what the outcome was, and. Um, of course, initially, that's the story that I guess everybody in prison will have or something. But I believe that these uh, 14, 15 years later attest to the fact that it was genuine. And I believe my family knows that as well, because not only from that point forward did it stick, but even now being home, um, even though I'm only home a month, I, I'm, I'm hitting the ground running for Christ, for the kingdom, in my calling, doing things like this. Um, I'm not going the opposite route because normally when somebody's going the opposite route, they get home from prison, they leave their Bible and they head on the track that they were before on. Okay. And that's not the case. So I just want, just want to say it's very genuine. It's not a jailhouse religion type thing or nothing like that. Matter of fact, um, I'm, I'm not religious at all. Um, I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus. Um, there is a difference. Yes, there is huge difference. Huge difference. <laughs> So um, I would say about six, well, after I got sentenced and all that, um, I, I got sent to the Department of Corrections. So from the Paris prison to Department of Corrections, which is upstate, you know, the big, the big house or whatever you want to call it, um, it's prison. It's not jail anymore. And there, um, and there is whenever the journey really began. That's when I really began um, being discipled, um, connected with a group um, of men, which it, it's hard to run across this, but a group of men in prison, uh, a tight-knit group of men that was in ministry, that was serious about God, and that God had transformed, and that they were way far along, had already graduated seminary. Um, two of my pastors, my first pastors ever, was Ronald Olivier and Robert Rousseau. And um, Robert Rousseau has since passed away. Um, but Ronald Olivier, he is home now. And me and him connected just the other day. Um, so I connected with these men and they embraced me and took me in once I was in DOC and they began discipling me. Um, so I got arrested January 4, 2007. I would say um, October 21st, 2007, that same year, I started preaching. October 21st, 2007 was the first sermon, the first time I ever got up in front of a congregation in the chapel and preached the message. And that was only because Pastor Ronnie was definitely pushing me along and um, propelling me into my calling. Okay, so I got to prison. I got part of the chapel there, a Grace Chapel Fellowship. Um, I started serving. I knew I had a calling on my life. I was, I was eating the word up like it was a buffet and I was a fat, hungry man. And, uh, and just, uh, dude, God moved in my life so fast. God moved in my life so quick, but it was a result of all the seeds that were sown previously, um, throughout my, throughout my life. Um, I began serving in ministry as an usher and I wound up getting a job in the chapel as an orderly through that. God promoted me. I became a minister on the minister team. And I went from a chapel orderly to a chaplain assistant chapel clerk working under the pastors. And those guys, we were in there every single day, um, 
mentoring, going through leadership classes, doing services. Dude, we had service seven nights a week. We had volunteers come in seven nights a week. And the inmate ministry team were the ones that moderated these services. They're the ones that did the worship. Um, we, you know, we're the ones that would do words of exhortation. And so it was literally coming into prison, going to DOC within a matter of six months, being in full-time ministry. Because so you've been in full-time ministry for like a decade or something. Since like 07. Wow. Since 07. Longer than that, 13. That's, and, that's and what's crazy that... is I say full-time ministry and people probably don't really understand how serious I, I mean, I mean that because there's literally real ministry operating inside of prison and to the point where you have um church government you collect tithes and offerings you raise money there's a, the business side of ministry going on in prison because you're you're the the uh, wardens and the prison staff allows you under the supervision of the chaplain to manage the account and the pastors and the team can um you know we give back to the population there we were providing indigent supplies um, we're doing fundraisers. We're having fellowship meals for, for large groups, 200 men providing food. And um, the elderly, giving the elderly a meal, um, uh, providing them with food and the movies and just different things that we were able to do. And so you're literally operating um, probably on a, obviously a smaller scale than maybe a mega church or a church on the street. But you're dealing with congregations of like 250 men and you're operating a real ministry, you know. Um, under the supervision of a chaplain and that's what we did and, and God continued to promote me and from uh, I got in I got enrolled in seminary in 2008 um, through Paul's dad because Paul's dad is the president of a seminary so in 2008 under the leadership of the chaplain and the proctoring uh, of the chaplain where I was at I, I started seminary um, so in 2008 that started and I went all the way got my associates, got my bachelor's, got my master's in theology. Um, all through this, all through these years, still going through ministry, still being groomed by that, going through leadership conferences, going through uh, seminars, different stuff, tons and tons. I mean, I could show you a portfolio full of, of certificates and accomplishments. Um, and all, I, I'm not boasting at all. This is all things that God has done in my life and has graced me with the privilege of being a part of. Um, graduated seminary with my master's in theology, transferred my credits, enrolled in Vision International University, and then was pursuing my master's in counseling. Um, recently, in 2019, I finished that and got my master's in counseling as well, and also through IACCP, the International Association of Christian Counseling Professionals, I have my certification as a pastoral counselor. Um, and all of this stuff was done, all of this ministry experience, serving for this long, um, God working and moving in my life. If I was to show you my resume, you would not know that or believe that any of it was done in prison. All of it was done in prison. Okay. And God oh, has connected dude, me with crazy. God has connected me with great men, um, great leaders, great mentors, great brothers in Christ, great family. And, and, um, that has continued now that I've been released. So on that real quick, initially, I was given a 20 year sentence. Um, actually it was a hundred years, but they wound up running it concurrent. So it was five counts of 20 year sentences, a hundred years, but they ran it concurrent, which means together. So it became one 20 year sentence, one felony, but five counts of armed robbery. Um, 
initially I was, I was not supposed to get home and I can show you paperwork on this. My release date was January 5th, 2027. Okay. And I came home July 22nd, 2020, six and a half years early by the grace of God. It's such a crazy story, man. Yeah. You go into prison. It's, it's amazing. You go into it was prison. a heck of a journey. And, and everything wasn't addict. good. I had my ups and downs. I had my struggles. You know, I had to be bottle fed. I had to get my diaper changed, you know, Christianly speaking. Uh, uh, shout out to Pastor Ronnie. Um, you know, and, and I, I've had falls, you know. I had, I've had falls in ministry. I've made mistakes. Um, it hasn't been all peaches and cream, but God's grip of grace is so strong upon the believer's life and the calling of God is irrevocable and he has brought me along and he has developed me and he has matured me and he has grown in me and it all goes to him. You know, it all goes to him. His hand is upon my life and, and I know uh, my identity now. I know my calling. I, I know what he has for me. And, um, and that's a very that's a very secure place to be in life, to, to know that. Oh, it's the most, it's, it's the only place of security. Yeah. It's the only place of real security, man. You go Absolutely. into prison, dude, a drug, a strung out, violent, angry drug addict. Yeah. Uh, with no hope. Right. None. Zero hope. Yeah. You come out 14 Without God and without later. hope in this world. Mm-hmm. You come out 14 later with a list of accolades and credentials i don't even remember everything you just named <laughs> with 14 13 14 years of ministry experience yeah so 250 people in a church you know that's that's probably the average size of the church in america yeah, so, so uh, we're we, talking we about had, all the churches. And that was in that was in a, that was in prisons that had fifteen to sixteen hundred people. Um, so we had more than a tenth of the population. That's mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. And, and you come and, out and of there, man. Uh, that that's um that's shout out to Pastor George King as well. I know people might not know him, but I'm sure they'll watch this. And uh and when I said about um having a bottle feed me and change diapers, it wasn't just Pastor Ronnie, it was George King too. Them them guys really sowed in my life and uh and help develop me in ministry and in my calling and, and, and in my shortcomings. So I, I gotta, I gotta give a big, uh, love appreciation to them men as well. Wow. Such a powerful story, man. So many people need to hear it. You know, like it just doesn't matter the lows that we get to God can yeah. just change it and change it so oh, dramatically. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah. we just, you just, you just let them in where you're at. Yeah, yeah that's right. And he meets you where you are. Exactly. It don't matter. It don't matter what uh, what pit you're in. It don't matter what dungeon, what miry clay. You know the psalmist says that he he brought him from mm -hmm. the miry clay. You know, and uh, and you know like like it says, wherever I make my bed, wherever wherever I make it, that he'll be there. And uh, and that's so true. He he never leaves us. He never walks away from us. It's always us that that pulls away from him. Um, right. But still, still his grace is greater. So. Let me ask you this, man. Uh, Ephesians 3.20 says, he, you know, which, you know, you really want uh, the full context of it. You really got to read Ephesians 3, like, it's like 14 through 21 or whatever. But that verse 20 is one of my most favorite verses ever. Uh, more, He's able to do more than we can ask, think, or imagine according to the power that's at work within us. That's so right. with that as your frame of mind, where is it you see yourself going 
say, where is it you want to be in five years? With, with what God has done for your life, with the now doors that are open, with the credentials that you have, and with that verse in mind, yeah. where is it you want to be with God helping people in five years? Um, well, I just want to be in the center of his will. Um, no, dude, uh, no. Tell, like, that verse says dream big. Yeah, yeah. What do well, you dude, want that, to be doing, man? I, I, I know. I'll see. I see myself expanding the kingdom. Um, I, I want to be involved in in outreach. Um, I could. I see myself with um, operating a nonprofit organization. That's awesome. I, I see Come myself on, in in the capacity of pastoring. I know I have a pastoral calling on my life. Um, and, and it, it's not. It's not just within the four walls of a church. Um, mm-hmm. It's in, it's in outreach. It's in it's in the homeless. It's in missions. Um, it's in other people that are, are going through these similar situations that are hopeless. It's reaching out to those that are in the streets. Um, I, I have vision. I definitely have vision and I, and I have uh, ministry ideas and I have stuff that's, that's written down in format of, of things that I would like to begin getting started when it comes to like nonprofits and, and ministry. Um, dude, I, I just see myself operating in the kingdom and that might sound general, but, but it's so direct. It's so big. It's, and it's not, it's not just within the four walls of a church or behind a pulpit uh, because people get that misconstrued. So it's in the world. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's in everyday life. It's in whatever I'm doing is ministry, wherever I'm serving, wherever I'm working, it's being an influence for the kingdom of God and bringing the rule and reign of God with me wherever I go. And I don't say that arrogantly. arrogantly I say that very humbly. Um, I am an mm-hmm. ambassador for Christ. I am a citizen of heaven and the kingdom of God. And I'm going to be carrying that with me wherever I go and influencing for that cause, for that reason. Yes, I have an agenda and my agenda is the kingdom. So don't See get it. mistaken. Don't think <laughs> I'm being passive with it. We represent the kingdom of God and, and that's the agenda. And uh, I hope to influence oh, everybody I encounter with that, impacting their lives and winning them for Christ, winning them for the kingdom. We got plenty of room in the kingdom vacancy is open it's it's totally open we got plenty of rooms and mansions and houses that he's prepared for us so all are welcome all can come don't get me started on here <laughs> i did i did um, and i did on purpose man oh, yeah. it's just it's so good man so good to just i never get tired of hearing the stories man hearing yeah. how how low people have gone in their own attempts at trying to live and then how high right. god takes them as soon as we oh, just surrender to him yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. It's powerful, man. It's really, really powerful. Well, we we might have to have you back on sometime down the road, and dude, I look forward to it, and I'd be honored. We talk. We'll we'll talk about something else. There's there's a lot of topics. <laughs> okay. Um, I feel like God just wanted me to share this one quick thing with you, man. Uh, the the sooner the sooner you write the book, the better. Oh wow, that's that's a confirmation because I know. Uh, I know I'll have more than, than a book. I know I'll, I'll be writing. Um, yeah. So I, I appreciate that. And that, that, uh, that spoke to me and, and uh, that's definitely Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I feel like the, the first one is the, the story of what okay. God's done for you. And that would just be a foundation to the other books God wants to write uh, through you and with you. And uh, I just feel like he's saying the sooner you write it, the better. Okay. I appreciate that word. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's going to be good. Tell me about it. I'll read it.
because you know in an hour so we spent what an hour here or something and it's like we covered a lot but there's just so much more to the story that you just can't oh, oh yeah yeah we yeah. could talk for five hours and you're not even yeah. going to scratch the surface of like <laughs> what God was doing in the darkness and how bad it got right. and what God was doing in the transition yeah. and what he's doing oh, now. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. that's, that's where awesome. he developed you is in the dark places. And, uh, and, and that's part of the journey. I mean, it's no secret. Anybody that, anybody that knows, knows that's part mm -hmm. of the journey. And then, you know, we got to go through that process, trust the Absolutely. process and you'll progress. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate it, man. I really, really do come on. It's it's kind of crazy man, to sit here and be talking with you and hearing about all the amazing things God done. I haven't been yeah. praying for you for like seven or eight Dude, years, I, I guess. It. I appreciate it. I'm very grateful. Very, very grateful. And I appreciate you and everybody else that, that have been part um, of this miracle. Oh, it's so worth it, man, to see it. So worth it, man, to see it. All right, well, guys, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Yep, on another episode here on the Recovered Reality Podcast. Adrian, it's going to be fun to watch what God does, man. Amen. And I'd like to say real quick, anybody that uh, sees this or hears it and would like to follow my journey, uh, you can send me a friend request on Facebook. It's at Adrian Young, A-D-R-I-A-N-Y-O-U-N-G. Uh, you'll see my picture on there, on my profile picture, and you're more than welcome to to send a friend request. Absolutely. Do it. You know, it's uh, especially if you've been through it or you're a family member of someone who's going through the struggle, we need to fill ourselves with hope yeah. for what God has done, is doing in our lives and, and the loved ones around us. And seeing it in the life of someone that's gone through that is, is just very tangible. It's very real. Absolutely. So I appreciate you mentioning that, man. Absolutely. All right, you guys. Well, thank you. And uh, Adrian, thank you again. And uh, we will, Talk to you guys again soon. Yeah, man, thank you, man. Y'all take care. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Recovering Reality Podcast. If you're interested in recovery coaching, please reach out to us. Get plugged into a free 20-minute session so we can get you on the road to transformation. If nothing changes, then nothing changes. You can start a brand new life starting today. Look forward to hearing from you guys. Thanks for joining us.